Welcome to Lives, a show exploring our experiences in the world and how we might live well. I'm Stuart Chittenden, and my guest today is Luis Marcos, founding member of the Maya Economic Development Corporation and of Comunidad Maya Pixanixim. In today's show, Marcos talks about the history, culture, and persecution of the Maya people, his commitment to the sovereign self-determination of the global Maya diaspora, and his own efforts to live true to his Maya identity and beliefs. When I heard a term cultural shock, I'm like, okay, this is what's going on with me. From there on, since the 1990s, I've been participating in organizations and uh, Maya conferences across the United States. Luis Marcos has dedicated his life to preserving Maya heritage and identity and to advancing the Maya indigenous people's sovereign ability for self-determination. Born in modern-day Guatemala, Marcos came to the United States when he was 16, eventually settling in Omaha in 2005. Since then, he has led efforts to support the prosperity, representation and sovereignty of the Maya people and the rebuilding of the Maya nation, including the founding of the Maya Economic Development Corporation and Comunidad Maya Pixan Ixim. Marcos is the Maya Governmental Ambassador to the Omaha Tribal Nation. Luis Marcos, welcome to Lies. Thank you. So to ground our conversation this morning, as you refer to Maya, Mayan people, could you define the, the sort of where and the who of those references? Yeah, when we talk about the Maya, the Maya is one of the first, uh, you know, nations in the Americas. Our territory extends from South Mexico, the entire state of Guatemala, the entire state of Belize, and the northwestern portions of El Salvador. All of those are contemporary states on on Maya territory. And so we uh, estimate, at least in Guatemala alone, we think there is at least 60% of the population is of Maya uh, origin, Maya identity, and so that's probably, we're probably talking about eight, nine million people uh, in Guatemala alone. Now, if you talk about South Mexico, Belize, El Salvador, and Honduras, then it's a pretty large, large number. We think there are easily about three million people of Maya origin in the United States, about 20,000 in the state of Nebraska alone, and we're probably looking about 4,000 in the metro, Omaha metro area. So it's a pretty big, big, big number, I mean, at least compared to other indigenous groups. You've already suggested in that explanation that there is a diaspora of indigenous peoples. What is the origin of the reason for that diaspora? Yeah, at least for modern, uh, you know, the, for modern times, the diaspora has to do with the cycles of violence, um, you know, and this is really, you know, when it comes to indigenous uh, peoples and uh, and the European invasion, there has been multiple cycles and multiple forms 
of violence, but one that comes uh, that really came to the attention of the international community took place between 1960 to 1996, and it really reached genocidal levels in 1983. And this is when the state of Guatemala was committing uh, genocide against the Maya people. And this is when a lot of us, uh, you know, came to places bordering states like, you know, California or Florida, you know, the East, the West Coast. I came to the to the States in 1989 at the age of 16, 17. And at the time, they were forcefully, the military, the Guatemala military were forcefully recruiting young people like myself at the time and to be trained uh, you know, uh, into military uh, forces and then sent back again to kill our own people. And that is something that I uh, just didn't want to do. And so that's how I left Guatemala in 1989 at the age of 17. And so to some degree in that terrifying description, you're also explaining why it is that members of the indigenous peoples that are that are in diaspora are unable to return to homelands because there is this continued cycle of displacement and violence. Yes, yes. Um, at least, uh, especially indigenous peoples who want to leave, you know, their, uh, uh, you know, spirituality and their identity, uh, you know, you, you, you cannot, you know, this is not a, a good place to be. And again, I think uh, when we talked about this, cycle of, of violence uh, from 1960 to 1996. We're talking about one form. We're talking about one cycle. But after after that, they on paper signed, uh, you know, a piece of courts. But really what happened then is they simply changed the way in, in which they continue to perpetuate those 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 violence. Uh, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's pretty much, you know, uh, a policy of states on indigenous people's territory, I would say, but especially Guatemala, um, it's 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 a matter of policy that you know they really do see the Maya people as the enemy of the state, or what they call them the uh, the internal enemy, and this is why the the, the policy it changes, but it's genocidal at the end of the day. Right now, what's happening is what we call, or what some international jurists call, the low-intensity genocide. You talked about that more recent history, but of course the, the states, the political sovereign states, as you describe them, they themselves are in some ways are relatively modern constructs in terms of sovereign nationhood. And the mayor ancestral homelands, of course, were much more extensive and I wonder if you wouldn't mind perhaps explaining some of the the history of how the Mayan tribes came together, lived in these homelands, and perhaps first encountered what what is described as the doctrine of discovery when European colonizers first began to disrupt those uh, tribal relationships. Of course, it's it's pretty well known, right, uh, that we were one we're one of the first nations in the Americas. We are you know, reached a, uh, a level of advancement in, in various uh, disciplines like uh, 
architecture, astronomy, mathematics, medicine, uh, and particularly agriculture with the cultivation, you know, that spiritual relationship with corn and the uh, three sisters system uh, of, of agriculture, animal integration and all of this. Now, uh, when we were sovereign nations with our own governments, when you look at right now what, you know, people call Maya ruins, basically you're referring to like our capitals, like the different, uh, you know, uh, metropolitan areas that our uh, ancestors built. When you talk about Chichen Itza or places like Tikal or of these political centers that are now in uh, under the control of, you know, the different states like Mexico, Guatemala, Belize, and all of these states on our land. Uh, those are all um, political centers. And again, all of these violence and dehumanization, uh, you know, uh, are based on that, what you referred to earlier. You know, this is a product of, of, of the what is known today as the uh, doctrine of discovery. The doctrine of discovery is an international legal construct um, that basically, you know, back in the times, what I will probably not get the, 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 the dates right, but there was a series of papal bulls, uh, you know, from the 1400s, 1450, 14, the last one I think was issued in the 1490s, um, basically calling you know, indigenous peoples, you know, these are the, the popes at the time issued a series of uh, papal bulls uh, calling indigenous peoples, you know, pagans, uh, enemies of Christ, and, uh, you know, and calling for our perpetual enslavement, killing, conversion to Christianity, uh, and then, of course, the taking of our lands and everything that we own, our intellectual properties, you know, um, you know things like that. Um, and that is, uh, that's the basis of what we know now as international international law, right? Um, that continues, you know, today, right? <laughs> yes. This also speaks to a little bit about maybe some confusion. S certainly, I, I confess to that myself before I had conversations with you. But this idea that because you locate your Maya ancestral lands in parts of the Southern Americas, that there's an identity that is ascribed to you that is perhaps maybe labeled Hispanic or Latino. And of course, that's not true, whether culturally in terms of language, in terms of heritage. Mm -hmm. So it feels like that is a, a confusion. Uh, what are some of the other misperceptions, perhaps, including that one? I have a hard time uh, here explaining who I am uh, in in Omaha, especially when I talk about the Kanhobal Maya government, right? I mean, they are, everybody says, well, what are you talking about? You know, where where are you from? Aren't you from Guatemala? Aren't you a Guatemalan? And the answer is no. And you just made reference to that earlier, Guatemala as a state, they just, what, celebrated their 200 years uh, of statehood, uh, whereas the Maya, as as a nation, we've been there for 
thousands of years. As far as we know, we have been on on our territory since times immemorial, our story of creation and all of this. And so, um, yeah, and when we come here to the United States, um, there is that statistical erasure, right, that we, uh, yeah, nobody is registered as a, as, as a Maya or a Canjobal Maya. You know, everybody is a Guatemala, a Mexican, a Salvadorian, uh, a Honduran, and, and they go by, you know, the names of the state, and they don't have the ability uh, to, to allow us to identify ourselves with, the, with our nations. And so that difficulty of not only self-identifying, but also being able to express an identity that falls on deaf ears because many people, myself included, don't necessarily have a frame of reference to even understand what it is that you're saying. And I think that's changing. Hopefully it is changing. But nonetheless, the context is is a little opaque for many. And I feel like that is in part what has spurred you to take a really strong leading role in educating and standing up for the rights and representation and self-determination of Maya peoples. So maybe this is a good point then to ask you to talk a little bit more about uh, the founding of Comunidad Maya Pixanixim. Yeah, this is our work here. Uh, we see ourselves right now, we as the Canjobal Maya in Omaha, we have uh, uh, started to organization one um, that you made reference to is Comunidad Maya Pichanishim, uh, which is a community development organization when, where we uh, do uh, programs related to arts, Maya arts, health, education, and things like that. And then we also created the Maya Economic Development Corporation, uh, which is Again, the emphasis there is economic development, citizen entrepreneurship, nation-owned enterprises that would generate revenue for uh, the administration of, of our government. And everything in everything that we do, uh, the objective is to rebuild nationhood, uh, right? It seems to me that we have three... Um, moments if you if you will one is that in our collective memory we do understand that we come from a very highly sophisticated you know civilization uh, and so i in our collective memory we have that the second is again the doctrine uh, of discovery, right? The dehumanization, especially from the Catholic Church, and I think this is also true for all Christian Christianity itself. But you know, for over five hundred years now, you know, Christianity has been telling indigenous people that you know what we believe in is of the devil. That also has registered in our collective uh, conscience, in our collective, uh, in our subconscious. And the impact of that, you know, talk about 
historical trauma, right? Uh, intergenerational trauma, you know, just coming from religion, coming from, you know, the states, you know, themselves. Uh, I remember the, the church, the Catholic church in Guatemala at the time, you know, during the early, early uh, times of the, of the genocide, they were saying, well, this is happening because of your sin, right? Uh, and, and you're paying for your sins, you're paying for what, you know, so then, on the one hand, you have this, you know, history, this collective memory that you come from, or we come from a, a, a very highly sophisticated, uh, you know, sophisticated civilization. Then you get this colonization and this period where the essence of who you are has been demonized. And so now what we do is we go through what we call a process of mind deprogramming and decolonization, kind of like, okay, now we have to remember who we are, unlearn a lot of, you know, the things that we, that have been, you know, taught, thought. And then the third uh, moment, if you will, is when we talk about rebuilding. How do we rebuild our, uh, uh, you know, nationhood? And I will just say this, that the essence of Maya worldview and spirituality is that we are here to live in harmony and equilibrium, not only with humanity, humanity with the diverse physiological, uh, you know, appearances or genetic differences, um, but also culture, language, religion itself political systems, like we're here to live in harmony and equilibrium with diversity. We're not, we don't have a, a program that says go and make everybody a Maya. Our mandate is live in harmony and equilibrium with everybody. And not only humanity, but also the rivers, the mountains, the trees, the animals, everything uh, that you know, all forms of life, that our life is not superior or inferior to, um, to any other form of life. And I, I, I put emphasis on this because whenever I talk about rebuilding nationhood, people think that we're going to be violent. People think that once we rebuild, we're going to create a military system that will, you know, just do, uh, you know, the things that were done to us, and and no, the answer is no. The answer is we want to rebuild our nationhood so that we can live in harmony and in equilibrium. So one aspect of of your vision for the Mayor Economic Development Corporation, and I'm I'm going to read the the vision of the organization, which is to serve as a thoughtful, strategic, intentional, earth-based, and socially responsible catalyst driving the socio-economic growth of the Maya people around the world. And you've been touching on this, and I do want to invite you to explain a little bit more. What is it that you mean then in that vision about Earth-based? How does that show up in, in the things that you do? For us, the Maya people, we have, we have our sacred sites, right? When we talk about our territory or when we talk about the land that we belong to, uh, we're talking about this understanding that Earth is our mother. Uh, we have that relationship. We talk, you know, with Mother Earth. Uh, we have certain sites that are sacred, 
And that's where our sacred songs come from. That's where our sacred calendars, that's where we live to the fullest, our our spirituality, our... And so we have that, that relationship uh, with Mother Earth. And based on that relationship of, you know, being, you know, children uh, of Mother Earth or the, you know, the land that we belong to, then our economic... Uh, activity then it it has needs to be reflected you know on, on that if you remember you know maya agriculture consists of okay we're going to use this plot of land for you know five years and then move to another plot of land and allow this one to come back again regenerate for 20 years before we can come back again now consider when we had the full extent of our territory we could do that in modern times what what it means is Again, getting back to that spiritual relationship with Mother Earth in Omaha and in so many metropolitan areas throughout the United States, when we're displaced from our land and we come here, we ended up we end up working in restaurants, we end up working in uh, construction work, we end up working in many of the and we we are disconnected from from Mother Earth. In Nebraska, what this means is we are proposing a regenerative agriculture system. We are talking about an agroforestry system uh, with animal integration so that we don't have to use, you know, pesticides. We don't have to use all of these agrochemicals that is poisoning pretty much our water system here in Nebraska, soil erosion, and all of these things. Now the University of UNMC, University of Nebraska Medical Center, has come up with, a, with some really extensive studies about, you know, the increase in pediatric cancers uh, because of the way agriculture is being done. And so that's what we're we are we are uh, proposing uh, is regenerative agriculture, agroforestry systems with animal integration, so that we produce our food. We're talking about food sovereignty not only for our nation, but we are leading the conversation with hopes that other people also will move towards uh, regenerative practices. And just to be clear, you talked about three sisters. And just for listeners, would you actually describe what are the three sisters? The three sisters uh, is um, planting corn, beans, and squash at the same time. Uh, and so how uh, in our system, corn, when it grows, it provides support for the beans to go uh, around. And, 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 and the beans provide... Uh, much needed nutrients to the corn itself, like nitrogen, uh, and then squash. Uh, and when you uh, when you have squash, then uh, you know how they have these huge, you know, leaves like this. Yeah. Uh, what will happen there is when it rains, uh, it's gonna keep shade, so that you know it's it's gonna keep the moisture. We don't have watering, you know, or, or irrigation systems like. You know, you see here in, in in conventional agriculture because we don't need it. <laughs> you know, rain is sufficient, uh, and, and and when you have roots, uh, you know, on the soil, and so when it rains, it absorbs a lot of you know the rain 
uh, and then it contains the water. So if it doesn't rain, you have enough moisture. But when you practice agriculture in the way that is being practiced right now, like, yeah, it can rain, but it just runs off, you know, with soil, topsoil and so there's no, so that's why there's there, there's this need of continually, you know, using the irrigation systems. And the vision that I shared earlier of the Mayor Economic Development Corporation, it talked about the mayor people across the world. And so even though you're based here in Omaha, you perceive the, the reach of its work and its efforts and your intentions uh, to extend much further than just the boundaries of the Midwest. Could you talk a little bit more about the intention behind this sort of geographic breadth of, of who you're trying to reach and connect with and serve? Our goals or our vision is to have a healthy humanity. Uh, so in that spirit, we are creating systems. We are engaging with other indigenous peoples. So when we talk about the mission of the um, Maya Economic Development Corporation, then, you know, at this point, we're all over. We are a nation, um, you know, we're present in Europe, we're present uh, in, in Canada, United States, uh, you know. And so how do we, you know, come together? Uh, and how do we uh, also get into trade uh, with other indigenous peoples? But we do it, uh, you know, in a way that... Uh, that is sustainable. Uh, you know, we do it with the seventh generation in mind, you know, that it's not about this one generation, but, you know, that there are many more generations to come. This idea of sovereignty, and I, I know that is key to many of your efforts, the United Nations, it passed what is a legally non-binding resolution, and it's the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, and it was passed in 2007, and it delineates and defines individual and collective rights of indigenous peoples. And the declaration emphasizes the rights of indigenous peoples to maintain and strengthen their own institutions, cultures, and traditions, and to pursue their development in keeping with their own needs and aspirations. And at that time, uh, America was one of only four nations that declined to sign on to that, but it's a country we have since um, signed on to that declaration. Um, part of the aspirations of the Maya Economic Development Corporation is that it exists to support the prosperity, representation, creativity, self-determination, and sovereignty of Maya people. And I'm wondering how the United Nations Declaration has helped shape your thinking and how you are going about this idea of establishing this sovereignty and this self-determination that you've been talking about. And here's a couple of irony here that that uh, that i would like to to discuss one is you know the un declaration on the rights uh, of of indigenous peoples uh they say it's 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 an aspirational document or is a non-binding you know non not legally binding um to us, which is a reflection, I think, again, of, you know, this idea of the doctrine, the doctrine of discovery, right? Uh, uh, just this idea that, you know, we're not human um, and because we're not Christian and because we're not Christian, we're not human. Um, everything that we have belongs to, you know, the, the, the Christian 
sovereigns, right? Uh, and so to say that, and, and, and this is true, I mean, you, it's, it's not you that said it, but this is what they're saying right now, that this is a declaration only, that, that this is not legally binding. But the thing is, uh, you know, it comes straight from legally binding international law that, for example, the, uh, the Convention on, on, on Civil and Political Rights, and it talks about the right to self-determination and self-government of all peoples, right? How is it that it doesn't apply to us as indigenous peoples? Well, because we're not people. <laughs> so, I, yeah, so, so the way I look at it is like, yeah, the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples is where states agree with us. We have been telling people like we are inherently sovereign nations. Actually, we are more sovereign than the states themselves when it comes to territory, for example. What gives a state jurisdiction and jurisprudence? over a territory or a people. Right now, indigenous intellectuals are, are using an emerging concept. They talk about the jurisgenesis or the genesis of jurisdiction and jurisprudence. What is the genesis of indigenous people's jurisdiction and jurisprudence with their land and with their people? It's that we we're born there, that we do have that sacred relationship with the land that we belong to. We have our sacred sites. That is the genesis of our jurisdiction and our jurisprudence with our land and with our people. Now, if you look at the states, they cannot say that. They have been either... They're celebrating their 200 years or their, you know, or, or they don't even know, <laughs> you know, how to govern yet, you know, uh, they, they don't know. And so in that sense, I feel like the states have aspirations for sovereignty, but they don't know what it is. Uh, they may have aspirations for territory, but they don't have you know, territory. What's the, the genesis of their claimed or their aspiration uh, for sovereignty? Well, it's the doctrine of discovery when it comes to, well, at least, you know, uh, in the context of, of this continent, the Western Hemisphere. It's the doctrine of discovery. So the way I look at the UN Declaration then, it's kind of, uh, you know, uh, it's it's a process. I I feel like of mind deprogramming and decolonization, probably for the states. You know, for them to actually come out and say, well, you know, uh, we'll we'll sign this. It took our it took indigenous peoples thirty six years of ne in, intense negotiations at the United Nations. Uh, you know, uh, before they signed it in two thousand and seven. And you're correct. The United States was the last one to. To, to sign it under the Obama administration uh, in 2010, I believe it was, when they signed it. You've mentioned the sacred relationship that Maya people have with their territories, their lands. You've also touched a little bit, for example, on the relationship with Mother Earth. You talked about creation stories that go back millennia in your people's ancestral view of the world. I'm wondering if there are other 
spiritual practices that are an integral part of Mayan history, heritage, culture that are top of mind for you? The expression, uh, you know, of our spirituality, uh, I think, consists of, you know, the four elements, right? Uh, you know, the four elements of that is needed to sustain life, and that is fire, water, earth, and air. And, for, and also the four dimensions uh, of our lives as, as, you know, as our spiritual, you know, health, our emotional health, our intellectual, you know, health and physical health. Like when you have those four, then you say you, we have equilibrium and we have, uh, you know, we can live then in, in, in harmony. When you don't have any of those, when you, don't, when you don't have physical health or when you don't have spiritual health. And so there's an imbalance there. And so I think those are the, uh, you know, expressions. And so we have, we have our fire ceremonies here, and this is why it's very important that we have, you know, have some access to, to land, not only in urban areas, a community center where we can gather and uh, and practice these ceremonies that are so, um, you know, uh, brings a lot of healing, not only to Maya people, but we have seen people from all walks of life coming to our sacred ceremonies and, and they find that healing because, you know, at the end of the day, you know, there may be cultural differences, but we really do share, uh, you know, that common humanity and we have the need to balance these four dimensions of life and, and, and these four elements to have contact with these four elements that also are present in our, in our physical body. Like, you know, yeah, it's, it's really, it's really important to, to create space for these ceremonies, uh, to take, to take place. Yeah. You were born in modern-day Guatemala. What do you remember? What stands out to you from your childhood? What was your childhood like? I remember um, I grew up, and in, in the village I grew up didn't have electricity, or um, and it was it was it was it was happy, right? It was a happy childhood. I you know we would go with the kids, and we would go, you know, swimming. Uh, and we would go hunting or we would go, you know, just, just be out there and, and, and being kids. And I remember the times when whatever happened in the world in terms of like the economy, you know, whatever happened in, in, in Wall Street or, you know, whatever didn't affect us because we were producing our own, you know, food at 100%, uh, you know, but uh, it's not the case anymore. It's 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 not the case anymore. So, uh, most of both of my parents transitioned, uh, you know, to the um, higher dimension of life, and uh, I still have my siblings uh, in in Maya territory, Guatemala, and some remain in the village that I I grew up in, but others have moved into. Or more urban areas, yes. Uh, so there has been family disruption, if you will. How was it then that you came to be in America in your later teens? Actually, uh, all of my brothers uh, came to to the United States. Uh, I had 
two that came before me, uh, I lost both of them to alcohol. Uh, and then I came with another brother that, uh, you know, he was here for about, I think, a couple of years. I don't remember how many years, but he went back and he married and his children uh, in Guatemala right now. I've heard you describe yourself as self-educated. So what does that mean? You know, I grew up speaking my native language, uh, and then, of course, I went through school there until uh, seventh grade, and uh, I finished uh, seventh grade at the age of 15, if I remember well. And I came to the States when I was um, 16, 17 years old, and, uh, you know, I had to work. So then I, uh, it, uh, it's not like I could go to school. And, and <laughs> so I learned everything, you know, that I know just by participating in many different adult education programs. Uh, actually, I took a vocational training. I mean, I taught myself to take that GED, you know, test and I passed it and went into vocational school to be a medical assistant. But after that, I mean, just, you know, self-educated. I've never done anything that was as dislocating and dare I say intimidating, but also courageous as moving from one environment with a completely different set of cultural expectations and behaviors and beliefs to another one that would seem as different as perhaps America did to you when you were young. What was that like for you making that shift from one context to another. Yeah, I, uh, that is a very um, painful situation, right? I mean, it, to be a teenager in itself is very painful. <laughs> it's like you're, you are in that time to form like your character, your personality, you're like, you know, you know, trying to be yourself and at the same time trying to be like 50 million other people, you know, around you. And uh, so that in itself, but for, for me to come from, you know, again, my village where I didn't really, you know, have, you know, I thought that was the world, the ended wherever I could, you know, as far as I could see. Um, so to come to a metropolitan area like, Los Angeles at the time, and uh, that's a huge, and for someone like, at the time, uh, Pete Wilson was the, the governor of, of, of California, and he came out with, you know, this, um, his Proposition 187, when he wanted to deport every everybody, pretty much. And so coming from a place like the state of Guatemala where they were burning down villages and killing and all of this and coming into a metropolitan area like and having this, you know, guy, you know, saying, hey, you know, uh, you know, blaming, you know, immigrants for whatever is going on, the economy and what have you. Uh, you know, just you, I would walk into a, uh, you know, a library and look at a white people and I would just like be scared because like, I mean, these people are mean, right? Uh, but then you also um, walk a, a, and I used to work in a clothing, you know, factory at the time when you see people that who describe themselves as Latinos or Hispanics. 
and uh, and of course my Spanish wasn't as as fluent and and also I have people uh, from Anjoval Maya territory that didn't have a very fluent Spanish, and so to also suffer discrimination from the Hispanic or Latino towards indigenous peoples. So you talk about the accumulation of the combination of all of these factors. I remember walking downtown LA feeling completely, totally like empty and talking about talk like, you know, just like, I know I have two hands that I can move. I know I have two legs and I can walk. I can think. At the time, I had my siblings, three of them. I had some friends, but some excruciating, you know, pain that is happening inside me. And I'm like, I don't know where this is coming from. I must be crazy, right? And to also remember historical trauma of demonization of identity and all of these things. There were times when I'm like, I could jump off this bridge, you know, and, and, and be done with this. Uh, but then I would just like, you know, continue to say, well, yeah, no, you just keep going and, 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 and working every day. And, uh, I remember one time I went to a group, uh, you know, a group meeting, and they talked about something called cultural shock. And when I heard the term cultural shock, I'm like, okay, this is what's going on with me. This is what's happening inside me. It does have a name. Uh, and there are other people going through it in the same way that I'm going through it. Then I'm like, okay, if I know the name, then I can deal with it. Like if I know what it is, then I can deal with it. And this is where I think uh, from then on, from there on, since the 1990s, I've been participating in organizations and conferences, uh, Maya conferences across across the United States, right? And, and the topics, that the three questions that we asked ourselves at every single one of these conferences for more than 25 years is who we are. You know, where are we right now and where do we want to be? Uh, and so those were the questions that we were asking ourselves. And it's just like kind of repeating, you know, year after year, who we are, where we are, where do we want to go? Uh, and then the answer is now, and ironically, you know, when our indigenous leaders were in intense negotiations at the United Nations for the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, uh, the uh, the Harvard Project, uh, there's, uh, there's something called the Harvard Project on American Indian Economic uh, Development. We're also doing a study uh, and Native Nations Institute of the University of Arizona. We're also doing a study on economic development in, in Indian country, they call it. And we were doing our own thing uh, as Maya because you have to remember, uh, you know, we were not accepted within the Latino or Hispanic community, but we're also not necessarily accepted within the Native American community because in the minds of people, if you're not from the United States, well, you're not Native American. And so it's like 
we were doing this this process um all of this to say that you know right now when we talk about native nations rebuilding or when we talk about uh rebuilding the maya nation uh we're talking about more than 36 years of maya experience of organizing in the united states and also in two th- in 2021, I believe, I came across this study uh, by Harvard uh, of native, it, they call it the Native Nations Rebuilding, uh, you know, by Harvard. And so now we ad- we're adopting and adapting this study to our uh, sociopolitical and socioeconomic reality to really be able to communicate with, you know, with academia, communicate with elected officials uh, in the state of Nebraska, uh, philanthropy, uh, and our own people, uh, and to say, hey, uh, we can rebuild nationhood. And there's a process, and there's an evidence-based process. This is there's a research-based process. There are other peoples that are doing it, and then we're looking at you know what's going on with the Maori, uh, you know, e- nation in New Zealand, and just looking at other nations like prosperous nations, the Winnebago tribe of Nebraska. I mean, it's right here home, you know, for them to come from eighty percent unemployment during the 1990s to now I think they're like what 20 percent I mean from maybe just a few hundred thousand dollars and to have uh, an enterprise right now worth maybe over five billion dollars I mean that's what we're talking about that's the 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 the, the that's 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 nationhood rebuilding that we're we're aspiring you talked about culture shock when you were navigating living in Los Angeles. Then you talked about discerning this path to support mayor people and self-determination, and that's the path you've been pursuing since then as a purpose in your life. Yes. And you've walked this line between becoming acculturated as a modern American citizen while at the same time advancing and holding on to your identity as a Maya indigenous person. I don't underestimate how difficult that is. And I'm wondering if you feel a sense of purpose that keeps you feeling fulfilled. You've used this word earlier. If you feel, if you have a sense of equilibrium in your life now. I finally do have a sense of uh, equilibrium. Yeah, yeah, I do. I do. And it comes from embracing uh, who I am, the essence of who I am. I think for many years, as trying to be someone else, right? I mean, when someone says, well, you're, for example, uh, I mean, bo- being born in the state within the aspirational borders <laughs> of Guatemala as a state, there are imaginary borders there that they have placed. Uh, and so... Then when the state of Guatemala says you're a Guatemalan or you're a citizen a citizen of the state of Guatemala or you're a Guatemalan, well, it 
don't matter what you do uh, at the end of the day is the oligarchies the, the 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 hispanics or latino or ladino as we call them in guatemala those are the ones that are in power that have the economic power that they have the military power the political power it don't matter what i do it will never be good enough for guatemala and so if i try to be a guatemalan you know singing the national anthem and saluting the uh, you know the, uh, the the flag and all of this it's not never will be good enough you know for them uh, i will always be a, a second class you know citizen and it's same thing with the with the church you know i was also taken to church by my parents and i was baptized catholic but it don't matter what i do there too it's never going to be you know uh you will always be less than you know whoever you know there's a it's 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 just ironic to see that i mean you see the um and so it's never never you know you try to be as good catholic as you can but it's never catholic enough so when I uh, embraced, fully embraced who I am, uh, the essence of who I am uh, as a human being and, and with the cultural, uh, then this is when I found myself liberated to be able to respect other people and actually love and care for others. And so this is where I am right now is I do understand that uh, I have this inherent right to belong to the Maya nation, but at the same time to participate in the political life of the state. I am a naturalized uh, U.S. citizen. And with that comes the responsibility to carry on what's good, but also to talk about what's not good. Uh, you know, to be a good, good citizen is to, is, is that it's say, okay, what's good and, and what's not good. And to, so, so that we can, we can also talk about that, which brings me to a point uh, that I, I, I want to make. When we talk about the genocide that the Guatemala government committed against the Maya people, 1960 to 1996, the United States a partner in that they did it in partnership with the state of Guatemala. The United States provided the funding. Uh, they provided the weaponry uh, and they provided the training. And so there is that, um, you know, responsibility. And I, I and I, I say it and I, uh, with a sense of responsibility, a sense of love, a sense of care, you know, for fellow U.S. citizens and for, you know, the, the, this diverse community where we live in now, but it needs to be said, it needs to be known. My guest today has been Luis Marcos, a founding member of the Mayor Economic Development Corporation and Comunidad Mayor Pixanixim. Luis, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you, Stuart. Thank you, and thank, thank the audience as well. Lives is brought to you on KIOS Omaha Public Radio and is produced by Courtney Beerman. The music you hear playing in and playing out is performed by Andrew Bailey. Podcasts of today's show and others can be found at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave a review. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. 
Join me next week as we delve further into the practical and profound possibilities of living well. Thanks for listening. Thank you.